easier, I think. Did you notice this morning that it's easier to sit down and let your mind come in from the parking lot just as your body did? It arrives after your body, you know, or it takes longer. But then here's your body sitting, and all of a sudden, your attention wakes up in the middle of it. And here you are sitting. So let's continue to sit. And just have one more thing in mind as we sit. Practicing mindfulness is not about sitting still or not about moving in a particular way. It's about paying attention in a particular way. And it's a practice uh, which I've suddenly decided or recently decided needs to be described as a practice that needs to get done not just every day, but 24-7. Sometimes you think about learning French 10 minutes a day or improve your memory in 20 minutes a day. So I think that this promises uh, make your life content and gratified and uh, hopeful and joyful in 24-7, the whole day, every day, with particular interludes of intensely working on concentration so that it keeps it brightened up, so that some period of deliberate mindful movement and some period of deliberate attention to the mind and how it works moment to moment. So as we sit for the next 20 minutes or so, as we sit for the next 20 minutes or so, feeling your body energized from moving, beginning with as much awareness of the totality of your body all at one time, this body sitting the way it is, doesn't need to sit a particular way, but however it's sitting, with eyes closed, feeling this is where my body is, this clump of energy that makes up this body in the middle of a whole cosmos, is right here at this moment. I once had a person explaining to me consciousness in a world on a molecular level. And he said something like, there are these lumps of energies clumped together in different shapes in the midst of other lumps of energy clumped together in different shapes. In the midst of a universe of things clumped together in space. So here's this lump that is recognizable as Sylvia, and this lump that's the Brahmani lump, or the Ace lump, or the U lump, and then we remember that. But then on some very fine level, had we but really wonderful superpower vision, we'd see that we're all manifestations of energy come together in the form of matter. 
that's on its own, but not on its own, that matures and changes from minute to minute, but in concert with everything that it interacts with, in concert with the air it breathes and the food it eats, and the things that happen to it, and the interactions that it has with all the rest of the world. A creation full of things spectacularly interacting with each other all the time. Being perceived by a very local set of perceptions. Taste on this tongue, sights in these eyes, sounds in these ears, feelings in this skin, smell in this nose, thoughts in this mind. Feeling around this particular concentration of energy that's you. Let the attention ride on the expanding and coming back that happens with all the parts of your body, with each breath that fills it and empties it. The body seems to get larger and then smaller again and larger and smaller. And one of the things that's true is that predictability things happening in a regular way, like the waves at a seashore or the breaths in the body, build a kind of concentration in the mind, a kind of restful platform that forms the basis on which other perceptions can be recognized and known and pass away. So here as we sit, the breath will continue in and out. Your body will continue to be here. Being bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller. And warm or cooler. And then into the space will come other Awarenesses, a sound, a thought, a feeling. A comfort, a discomfort. Just to rest in what's ever coming by. In a great space of awareness. There's lots of room for the whole world to arise and pass away without creating any tension. We'll use the phrase from my friend Ajahn Amaro, let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease and just stay there.
It's such a big and potent phrase, and just stay there. It so presupposes and gives a hint of the fact that that could be true. We just could live in a world, inner world, of peace and ease from which we could be motivated out of love and out of compassion to respond capably and seriously and indefatigably on behalf of the world. So let's just sit like that for maybe 15 more minutes.
when we arrived near the end of our sitting time, it's been the habit in this group to leave some time for people to mention whenever they feel like it into the community the names of people who they're thinking about with special intention, people who have had some great sudden thing to celebrate and um, some people who are having a harder time than usual just now. I'm thinking a lot uh, still of my friend Joel, who um, died last Monday, whose friends are keeping each other company on the email with um, sweet supportive messages about how much we loved her, from which I'm learning that, uh, again and again, how love continues to last past the life of a person. So I'm thinking of Joel with a lot of appreciation. And I miss her. sadness and um, celebration of my father who died on the winter solstice at uh, 102 years old. We have a dear friend Nancy whose sister Susan just underwent um, brain surgery and is recovering and just all prayers to her that her recovery goes smooth and she
for all the people that we've uh, mentioned and all the people that we thought about and didn't mention out loud and all other people everywhere. May everyone have people who care about them and want to take care of them. May this world be a companionable place where we keep each other company kindly. So, thank you very much, Brahm. Today was the second day of the newly inaugurated 10 or 15 minutes of mindful movement to move into mindful non-movement. Are you happy with it? Should we do it again? Will you do it again? All right. I was also happy with it. I think it's a smooth way to start in, really not to you know, slide in right out of parking lot consciousness and say, let's get it together and meditate, but let's get it together a little bit. Now we're all here. Now we'll do with the body, get it here, and the attention, get it here. Now with the intention, combined with the attention, let's refine it and rest in it. That's, yeah. I felt mellower going into the meditation. I felt I just got more ease going into the meditation than, than before. Yeah, I, I thought so too. But it's really, thank you very much. Rather than one, two, three. Yeah, yeah. Everybody thought so. Good. All right. I don't think that it requires being ratified by both branches of Congress here. But uh, uh, let's make it a, a, a tentative law until somebody challenges it. And uh, I don't know what Donald will do next week. Um, are you, but you're not going to be here next week. And I won't be here for a few weeks. I don't remember when I'll be here, but in, in February, I think. Okay. I don't either. But uh, whenever I'm here, you'll be back on the 13th. Are there any people who have never been here on a Wednesday morning when we're all here? Anybody who hasn't been here? Would the people who haven't been here before please stand up? Just for a minute. This is not a big deal. This is not a big deal. So now, here's a very hard thing that you have to do. You have to say, my name is and I live in such and such a place. And then you can sit back down. Welcome. Did you say your name was Allison? And did you say your name was Allison? Oh, Allison. Okay. Ayala Lev Mendelssohn. 
How old are you? Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you for coming. May you have a particularly good year. So what? Well, and you came together, yeah. And are you uh, meeting with with uh, Tony Bernhardt very much, or do you know Tony Bernhardt who teaches in Davis? Hmm. Her book. Tony Bernhardt curiously has a husband named Tony Bernhardt also, and He's in Davis and he teaches classes all around the foothills and up there. And he's a wonderful teacher. And he teaches so often when I'm not here. And he is currently teaching me uh, uh, Nagarjuna and Mahamudra that I'm learning from him. And he's a wonderful teacher. So uh, Tony with a Y, Bernhardt. And you can find him on Google. Welcome. 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 Whoa, this is not a direct route from... Happy birthday. How old are you? 42. Great. This is like some cosmic moment was at that moment the heavens opened. Maybe because Rebecca said, I am Rebecca. You see, what the mind does is the mind is a storytelling apparatus, among other things. It takes a few things and it puts them together as a story. And sometimes, you know, the story turns out to be potent. Just when something happened and... uh, And sometimes we believe the story. Often we believe the stories we tell ourselves. And they're not really believable. They're not really true. We just like the story. And then we keep telling it. I was, whoops, look at that. That was interesting. I I was teaching many, many, many years ago with my friend, Sister Mary Neal, in a retreat building down near Santa Cruz on the ocean, uh, in a big living room of a big convent with all windows around. And uh, I was talking about uh, that wishes, something like a thought that maybe can produce an action if a lot of people have that thought and mobilize about it. But my thinking is not magical thinking. I can't make things happen. And I said, for instance, I cannot arrange now 
to have an earthquake in Santa Cruz. And that moment that I said it, there was an earthquake. And and the windows shook. Now, in a million years, that it, it just happened that time. And I am absolutely sure it didn't have to do with the fact that I said that. Two things happened. But it would be a great story to tell. And she spoke, and there was an earthquake. Because we put things together that 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 happened because of it or that the meaning of that was something, which is really what I want to talk about mostly today, that the meaning of everything is something that we add to, we editorialize on our experience and bewilder ourselves. So one more thing, I kept looking over as the ace. So when ace is here, but even when ace is not here, uh, I feel really, uh, if a, I say all the time when he's not here, if Ace were here, he would. He would. Say hello to someone that you don't know. Ace could say it by himself today. Okay. Say hello to someone that you don't know for the next 60 seconds so they're excited by meeting you. So, 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 I wonder if this is working. Is this working? 
I wonder if this is... Yes, it is working. <laughs> so, uh, just, a, just a little point, a point, process, process question. From, the, from, from now till two minutes ago, who feels better? Thereby proving that, uh, that connections with people, however fleeting they are, if they come from a place of well-meaning, I want to meet you, why are you here, why am I here, are the moments that really wake us up in our life. I think we're only alive in relationship, really. There's nothing here that doesn't exist that ex- does that exists by itself without all the context of who loves me and I love them and what what's my whole life. I think with the relationship is where everything is, and we waken. So you say, well, how can we go on a re- re- retreat where you don't look at anybody and you don't connect with anybody? First of all, people on retreat who don't look and don't connect, it's really it's a relaxation from the daily need to connect with everybody. But it's also lonesome. It's or um, while the mind gets quiet, it begins to notice how much it uh, uh, thinks about relating, how much it wants to relate, how much we want to look at people and really be there for them, look at people and really relate with them, and be there for them. So this is what I thought I wanted to um, start with this morning. First of all, I wanted to start with asking, who has reading glasses? I brought three pair and left them all upstairs. So somebody could lend me the reading glasses. I need quite strong. <laughs> That would be in the best tradition of my father. My father had smudged glasses all the time. We, he didn't wear glasses as a as a, a young, even mature man, and I didn't wear them either until I needed them as an older person. And so he didn't take care of them. And I spent a lot of time saying, "Dad, your glasses are smudged." Now I look in the mirror and I say, "What's the matter with you? Your glasses are smudged." You know what? too strong, but if I move it over, it's okay. That's okay, it'll work. What I want to talk about today is the fourth in, we've had these four weeks together, and I made the pledge in the beginning that I wanted to do in these four weeks some concerted overview of what is the crux of what the Buddha taught, that you should be able to say it. I think you can say it actually in one sentence, and I've been making a point of that recently. But even if you want to mention a few things that you can't do in one sentence, uh, to be able to teach the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, and for people who don't know, the Four Noble Truths is the immediate compendium of what the Buddha said after his own self-declared awakening. Now I get it while people suffer and told that why I get why people suffer. In life, there's pain. Uh, pain and unpleasantness. In life, there is pain and unpleasantness. And then the subcategories of that. There's the pain, physical pains of getting born and falling down and sick and having illnesses. There's the pain uh, of wanting things and not getting them. There's the pain of getting them and they're not what you wanted or they are what you wanted and then they don't last. There's the pain of 
unfulfilled expectations. Mostly, the Buddha talked about the pain of wishing for things that don't happen or can't happen. I wish it were otherwise. I had a friend who died in his early 30s, middle 30s, a man with a young family growing up, a career as a physician, a great healthy body, a happy family. He developed very unusually breast cancer, which is not a male disease, but he did. And he died. And after he died, this is 30 or 40 years ago, his wife sent out to all his um, connections a letter that he'd wrote written to all of them, thanking them for being in his life. And he said, I never wanted, I would have wanted more, but I never wanted other. And that's been actually a really important part of my thinking. How would it be to not want other? We hear that uh, religiously, we say, thy will be done. was thinking of it somewhere in a uh, in some other religious sentence you know it's out of our hands what was I thinking about yesterday with it's out of our hands uh, oh uh, actually in the beginning prayer when you get up in the morning as a Jew one of the sentences of I'm glad to have gotten up again in the morning is the beginning of wisdom is fear of God or awe of God, however you want to think about that. You did it. Good for you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now I can read again. The beginning of wisdom is, uh, I, pre- I, I prefer to read that as awe of God. However, uh, is awe to begin with. Look, it's amazing to be alive. Is, we could have a, a universe or not. We have a universe, so that's amazing. But besides that, the beginning of wisdom even is fear of God or all. I like to read that as it's out of my hands. The beginning of wisdom is knowing that it's out of my hands. Generally, it's out of my hands. I can make every best effort I should. But I am not in charge of my life or anybody else's life. Things happen. And whatever happens to everybody is the complete sum and total of all the karmic influences. Not of other lifetimes, because I don't know about other lifetimes, but of this lifetime on this planet with these people. What's ever happening in the world now, terrible as it seems to be, happened from causes and conditions, climate changes and people and... Uh, civilizations and ideologies and people but mainly people and it gives me hope that people could wake up and do something different which I hope very much they'll do soon so what I was giving you a summary of the last three weeks has been saying the Buddha taught it's out of our hands the only way to meet the life, knowing that we're not in charge, but what we do matters. And when when we meet situations that are unfortunate or sad uh, or difficult, don't make them worse by insisting that they not be there. Everybody who gets a diagnosis of 
type 2 diabetes. I says, okay, this is the rest of my life. Anybody who gets a diagnosis of whatever, it's not fatal to write that minute. Okay, now I do the rest of my life. We are constantly accommodating to change. The best, uh, uh, for me, the most evocative uh, piece of wisdom maybe ever was my friend Martha, who died 10 years ago, who said, who had uh, pancreas cancer. And she said, I've, I suffer every time I think, why me? Why me? Why not me? My family doesn't have this in their background. I'm so young. I eat right. I take vitamins. I exercise. I meditate. Why me? And she said, I suffer a lot when I think that. And then all of a sudden she said, I'll think to myself, why not me? People get pancreas cancer. I'm a person. It happened to me. She said, I'm not any happier about dying, but I'm not suffering about it. It's like the luck of the draw. It's what happened. Why not me? I said, I still wish I wouldn't die, but why not me? She said, my mind is not all tied in a knot. And the only thing the Buddha said is your mind could not be tied in a knot. I've been reading uh, recently uh, 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 Nagarjuna, who was five centuries after the Buddha. Uh, and there's a big poem about teaching his whole dharma. And it starts with a, uh, two verses saying, Our minds are tied in tangles. And it's so hard to untie those tangles. I'd like to untie those tangles. I like that very much. Our minds are tangled and tangled. We have to keep untangling them. And I think we keep tangling them up again. I'll do so much summary of three weeks, I won't get up to this week. So we continue on. When I thought to myself on this week, what's left that I haven't talked about? And he talked again, of course, about the Eightfold Path, the path to untangling the tangles by all the ways in which we behave in our life. And uh, I thought to myself, the only thing I didn't mention as basic Buddhism, which if if people had a four-week way to say, what's the whole of this teaching, is the teaching later on of Brahma Viharas, of the four sublime states. If How many people have ever gone on a uh, Buddhist retreat? Oh, maybe a quarter of people. On a retreat, you heard undoubtedly um, a uh, lecture about the kinds of energies in the mind that clouded up, like greed or lust, Well, lust is the same as greed. You know, if you say lust, it has like a bad feeling and you have a bad visualization. But every greed is a lust. You know, I need to have that. Or fear. Uh Uh-oh, I can't deal with this. I don't know what to do. Or anger. It shouldn't be happening. Or exhaustion. I can't face this. My life is too hard. I need to retreat. Or, uh, it's my fault. Or, this dharma isn't working. I'm in the wrong place. I should have taken up something else. Tai Chi would have been good for me. But, you know, this is not working. This is not a good path. It, but the, And those are all, each of them is by themselves. 
an unpleasant feeling. So on top of the unpleasant feeling that's thrown the mind off balance so that one of these confusing energies fills the space is the fact that all of these confusing energies are in themselves unpleasant and they confuse the space even more. So the idea of unconfusing energies is a really important one. A few months ago, there was a man named Analio. He's a German monk who, uh, he was born in Germany, not a monk, and as an adult, he went to Thailand or Burma and studied and became a really seriously distinguished uh, Dharma scholar. And now he spends his time... um, I don't know him personally, I just met him on that occasion here. He spends his time in Germany most of the time, spending three days a week doing scholarly research and translating from the uh, Pali and the Sanskrit scripture, and four days a week meditating and working on his inner processes. And he came to teach... uh, teachers here. He offered a a morning of teaching and so many of us, including me, came to hear because we knew about him and we knew about him because he'd written a book. His name is Analio and the book is really in the bookstore. And he's also, um, Joseph Goldstein wrote a book about called Mindfulness which he credits uh, as the understanding that he now has on mindfulness that he has gotten from Analio. So I came to that particularly because that's a lot of lead up to Analio must be something amazing. I thought it was pretty amazing. Uh, it was just one day, so I didn't hear much of him. But the what, the part that I wanted to tell you about is he says, talked a little bit, not too much. Uh, and then he said, uh, let's do some meditation together. Uh, sit in whatever way you like and... Uh, Let your mind come to rest just with openness and uh, steadiness there. Like, just do it. You know, let's uh, uh, not lead up to it, but just do it. Let your mind relax with nothing there, just steadiness. If you discover, he said, that there's anything going on in your mind that's confusing it or clouding it in some way, bring in any one of the Brahma Viharas and sweep them away. Just do it, you know. And he said, yeah, I'll give you a minute or two to do that. All right, now we'll do it. And then he did some guided meditation, do this or that or this or that, with your presumably, at that moment, cleared out, relaxed, spacious mind. So the truth is, I don't remember what my experience was because I, at the moment I thought, that's a really radical teaching. And I was trying to remember what he said so I could carry it away and radically teach it. Uh, it, it, Well, everybody who teaches does that. You bring a notebook, you write it down, and then you run to somebody else that. But I've been thinking about it because I've been working also on saying, well, listen, there must be another way of purifying the mind so that unwholesome states do not get a, 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 a grip in the mind. That unwholesome states arise, but they arise, and then 
like, uh, well, let me give an example. Um, somebody says something. <laughs> Maybe you actually walk by a, a television set where a particular candidate or a p- political person is making a statement that you know immediately is you don't feel good about that person and you don't feel good about the message. <laughs> and perhaps an unwholesome state arises in your mind that uh, could happen. Uh, so an unwholesome state is yuck, you know. But some variety of that, like uh, not liking or fear, oh my God, or... Uh, lust, I need to get something better than that, or I need to get rid of that, or I can't stand this, I'm going to lie down, or we're in t- I'm in trouble, I'm frightened. Any of those states, those are all those same five hindrances. And to be able to say, wait a minute, be interested in, maybe I should be, could be interested in what this person does. Maybe I'll just sweep my mind with the Brahma Viharas, like they were a broom. And then I'll be able to hear this with a plain mind. So what I wanted to do was tell you more about each of the Brahma Viharas today and why they act as a broom. Giving that as one example, you could sweep your mind with the Brahma Viharas. If it was filled with uh, compassion for the world, if it were filled with compassion for the world, it would wipe that away. As a matter of fact, if it was unpleasant because you were afraid for yourself and for the world all the more would compassion for the world come up for you. I'll give you an easier example, a more focused example, because this actually happened to me the other day. I wanted to read these two things to you. They're from uh, Sunday's New York Times. So first I read the... Uh, um, um, editorial in the New York Times, which is a very long editorial, an exhaustive story about, um, well, it says, this is part of a series of policing pregnancy in America. The full series will appear on Sunday, January 20th. It is now online at, and it's about the push in uh, the United States to make uh, a a fertilized egg, an embryo, uh, a person and criminalize uh, abortion while making contraceptive care and general family planning unavailable. I don't want to read it all to you because it's cumulative, but it was way more stuff that's happening than I knew about. Not only the absence of... um, Planned Parenthood clinics more and more, but the criminalizing the statutes that of things that can happen to women. In essence, they're talking about um, I don't want to read the whole thing. News organization shouldered much of the blame for the moral panic that cast mothers of crack addictions as irretrievably depraved and the worst enemies of their children. 
But the myth of that, hospitals that served indigent women began drug testing newborns and reporting the findings to authorities who placed children in foster care or held them in hospitals for months, sometimes based on inaccurate drug tests. I won't read the whole thing, but just to tell you that it's a, it's a, uh, it builds on itself the many ways in which women are not counted at all, dehumanized. They have no choice in this. They become wards of the state for having become pregnant. And there's all kinds of, in different states, things that can or cannot happen to them. So I was depressed when I read that. I, I find my mind getting into a, funk about it. Then I turned on the page and I see here is Nicholas Kristof, who's one of my favorite writers, who says 2018 was the best year in history. For whom is that a surprise here? <laughs> Are you surprised? Yeah. So I'll tell you why. Do you believe it? Uh, all right. But Nick Kristof said it, okay? The whole world is, as everyone knows, going to hell. But there's still a nervous thrill of waiting to see precisely which dark force will take us down. Will the economy collapse first, the ice sheets melt first, or chaos and war envelop us first? Here's my antidote to the gloom. Let me try to make the case that 2018 was actually the best year in human history. Each day, on average, about another 295,000 people around the world gained access to electricity for the first time, according to Max Roser of Oxford University and his Our World in Data website. You can look this all up. Uh, Every day, another 305,000 people were able to access clean drinking water for the first time. Every day, an additional 620,000 people were able to get online for the first time. Never more has such a large portion of humanity been literate, enjoyed a middle-class cushion, lived in such long lives, had access to family planning, less and less in the United States, but that's my editorial, or been confident that their children would survive. Let's Let's hit pause on our fears and frustrations and share a nanosecond of celebration at this backdrop of progress. On a dirt road in rural Angola a few years ago, I met a woman named Delfina Fernandez who lost 10 children out of 15. She had endured perhaps the greatest blow any parent can and she had suffered it 10 times. Yet such child deaths are becoming far less common. Only about 4% of children worldwide now die by the age of 5. It's still horrifying, but it's down from 19% in 1960 and 7% in 2003. Children in Mexico and Brazil are less likely to die by the age of 5 than American children born as recently as 1970. The big news that will make the headlines and won't appear on television is that 15,000 children died around the world in the last 24 hours. But in, 19, in the 1990s, it was 30,000 kids dying every day. 
Perhaps it seems Pollyannish or tasteless to trumpet progress at a time when there is so much butchery, misrule, and threat hanging over us. But I cover the butchery and misrule every other day of the year, and I do this annual column about progress to try to place those tragedies in perspective. One reason for this column is that journalism is supposed to inform people about the world and it turns out that most Americans and citizens of other countries, too, are spectacularly misinformed. For example, nine out of ten Americans say in polls that global poverty is worsening or staying the same, when in fact the most important trend in the world is arguably a huge reduction in poverty. Until the 1950s, a majority of humans had always lived in extreme poverty defined as less than $2 a day per person. When I was a university student in the early 1980s, 44% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. Now fewer than 10% of the world's population. Likewise, Americans estimate that 35% of the world's children have been vaccinated. In fact, 86% of all one-year-olds have been vaccinated against diphtheria, tetanus, and whooping cough. Everything seems to get the world developed. Everyone seems to get the world devastatingly wrong, said Hans Rosling, a brilliant scholar of international health. He wrote in Factfulness, published in 2018. That was last year, a book called Factfulness. Probably be interesting to see. Each group of people I ask thinks the world is more frightening, more violent, and more hopeless. In short, more dramatic than it really is. I suspect this misinterpretation reflects in part how we in journalism cover news. We cover wars, massacres, and famine. And are less focused on progress. In the last year, I've covered atrocities against the Rohingya, in Myanmar, starvation in Yemen, climate change in Bangladesh, refugees and child marriage at home, and some of the world's worst poverty in Central African Republic. All those stories deserve more attention, not less. But I never wrote columns or newsletters about three nations that registered astounding progress against authoritarianism and poor governance. In 2018, Armenia, Ethiopia, and Malaysia. It is true that there are huge challenges ahead. The gains against global poverty and disease seem to be slowing. Climate change is an enormous threat to poor nations in particular. And in the United States, and the United States is an outlier where life expectancy is falling, not rising. Every other day of the year, go ahead and gnash your teeth about President Trump or Nancy Pelosi. But take a break today and remember, just for a nanosecond, to remember that arguably the most important thing in the world now is not Trumpian bombast. Rather, maybe the world's poorest and most desperate inhabitants are enjoying improved literacy and well-being, leading to a day when no mom will again lose 10 children. So I wanted to read you those for, for two reasons. First of all, I felt uplifted by reading that. And the other thing is I began to really reflect on how one of the things that I can watch my mind having the possibility, 
more possibility of doing than it used to. This, I think, is a result of practice. It can choose. I can choose to keep my mind on the news stories that tell me it's all terrible. Or I can choose to remember also that it's like this. I can choose to... uh, Well, let me connect it actually to to, uh, how the Buddha taught about practice. How many people have heard of the Eightfold Path? Okay, everybody heard about that. Eight different ways to practice. Can you tell me them? Try. Wise speech. Right action. Right livelihood. Right concentration. Right mindfulness. Right what? Right understanding. Right intention. Huh? Right thought, okay. We, we, unless you are meaning right effort by that. Okay. That comes out of wisdom. Right aspiration is another name for it. The one we didn't mention is right action. It comes in the middle, right, right uh, effort. And it comes in the middle part of the path. It's, the path is perfection of morality, perfection of the mind, and the uh, evolution of wisdom. The perfection of the mind, the inner work that one does by oneself, the morality you do in the world by interacting with other people. Here are these that say, okay, you have to get your mind concentrated enough to not tip over. In, you know, it, it, it wobbles a little bit in a big wind of, of things to deal with, but it's got enough concentration to stay relatively steady. It's got enough mindfulness to recognize what's going on. The third aspect of that middle part of training is called wise effort, right effort. And it has a specific instruction. Uh, For years, I heard it uh, mis-explained as you should make as much effort as you can. It's not that. It's a specific effort to notice in this moment, is this impulse... Uh, uh, if I act on this impulse, will it go towards uh, a wholesome state or an unwholesome state? It's like it begins to see the whole of life as a as a path that we're walking along, where about which is going to be um, towards which is going to be uh, challenges, 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 and to be able to say, "Here's a challenge." I smell the, uh, we'll make them easy. I, I'm walking by this uh, this cafe and the smell of pizza is coming out the door. This pizza is very good. I really wouldn't mind a pizza. I'm really hungry. And the mind that says, it's very hungry. and I, and, But don't go there because you're late for a meeting and the meeting is a lunch meeting. Keep going forward. That's a very minor wise effort. The whole unwholesome decision, I'll run in and get a piece of pizza and eat it while I'm walking. It's not, And I'll be late and I won't have an appetite. It's not a good decision. So you override that impulse to, for lust. On the other hand, you think, I'm going to the meeting, I'm going to the meeting. Yuck, I hate that guy at the meeting. I don't want to be, 
I, you know, and what if I sit next to him? I'll probably say a bad thought about him, and and I'll tell him. and say, wait a minute, no, let's just may all beings be peaceful and happy. I'm going to the meeting, and I'm not going to think that thought, nor am I going to remember all the ways that he riled me up. I'll meet him today and see how he is. It's keeping your mind from taking a path that leads to unwholesome and a path that leads to wholesome. And transferring it to wholesome. And the two ways that it can be hijacked, it can be hijacked for greed, I need this, or it can be hijacked for an anger or a fear. I have to fight this and get rid of it. And the middle path says, no, you go along doesn't mean you don't eat lunch or you don't express your views, but you do them mitigated through uh, an awareness that they could lead to a state they could produce suffering for yourself and other people. Uh, one of my favorite authors, who is uh, Nyanapanika Tara, wrote a book called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. It's an old book, but it's so good. I am so fond of Nyanapanika. I, I end up really quoting him more than anybody else. After he describes about mindfulness is the awareness moment to moment of what's happening and what's coming up in me in response to what's happening in order to be able to inform what should I do. Mindfulness is not just being awake in the moment. That's half the definition. Or being in the here and now. That's half the definition. Here and now, what's happening, including how do I feel about what's happening, and including... What, if anything, is the most salubrious response to what's happening? What's the most wholesome response to what's happening? We'll skip the pizza parlor. Well, let's just try to think of something that that person has done that's actually been helpful so you don't have to go in all whipped up about them. Or let's go in confirmed in our minds that we're going to not lead from anger, but we're going to lead from our own strength and goodwill, that we are correcting the mind every moment from falling into uh, something that's off of what is the wisest thing to do in this moment. And the to-do means what's the wisest thing to say as much as what's the wisest thing to do. I hate this candidate. I don't like either candidate. I'm not going to vote. Just for that, I'm not voting. I have a number of friends who live in states that just barely, in Pennsylvania, for instance, states that it could have gone otherwise. And a number of my good friends who say, I don't like either candidate. I like, don't like this one more, but this one I also don't like, so I'm not voting. That's, about, that's an act. And it's a significant act, and it makes a difference. And it's part of, you know, I'm protecting my own integrity. I don't like that person. But not thinking of the whole world. You know, my own integrity is not getting voted on at this point. Who's leading the country is getting voted on at this point. So to think moment to moment. Is that interesting to you? There's a very important sutta that I'll tell you then in conjunction with that, because I want to tell you the Brahma Viharas, I'm watching the time. There's a, there's a, there's a story that the, uh, you know, the Buddha, before he went off on his solitary quest for wisdom, uh, had a wife and he had a son, and he left them. A lot of, uh, I remember when a lot of people used to find that out and be so upset by that, 
It's a deadbeat dad. What's the matter with that? You know, we we don't like guys who go off and leave and sneak off in the middle of the night. Well, who knows what he actually did in the terms of leaving. But he had a son and a wife who both, according to the story, which might or might not be folkloric, uh, both of which joined his order and became wise. Anyway, there's a sermon called... um, Advice to Rahula, his son's name was Rahula, and you can look it up on the internet, Advice to Rahula. And uh, he says to Rahula, before you do anything, Rahula, think to yourself, is what I'm going to do going to be for my benefit and for the benefit of all beings? And if it is, continue. If it's not, don't do it. And in the middle of doing anything, Rahula, think, is what I'm doing now, is that for everybody's benefit and my benefit? If it's not, stop it in the middle and erase what you were doing. If you do it already, you think to yourself, is what I just did for my benefit as well as for the benefit of all beings. And if it wasn't, go back and make amends, erase it right then. And when I've taught it often over all these years, people say, you'd have to live if you were going to stop before every action, Everything that you said and think to yourself and before and during and after, you would lead such a staccato life. You could never be spontaneous. You have to, uh, 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 uh. You'd be always reflecting on is this, is this, is this. But I don't think that's true. I think if your moral compass is habituated to choosing for the good, then you don't accidentally. Or if your moral compass is habituated for the good, of all beings, if you start in to be making a mistake in terms of it not being for the good of everybody, you recognize it right away and you stop in the middle. It's probably happened to me here that I've said half a sentence. Who was here on a time when I said half a sentence and I said stopping, not doing that anymore? Wait, that was a bad start of a sentence. I see a couple of people were here. I can actually remember the instances because I really, really learned in that time what was inept and personally motivated. So I don't do it anymore. I really learned from it. This is not to say that I get everything perfect, but I think it becomes a habit of mind to be an advocate for the good, for yourself and for other people. And it stays that way because that's a happy way to be. How many people here think that they are or certainly would like to be an advocate to the good? Yeah. Yeah, what were you going to say? More and more, so I think part of our, uh, I'm hopeful that part of my uh, intention in today, we're still starting the new year, is to say, you know, not to, not to start it hopelessly. You know, the government is in chaos, but 
You know, there's people out there doing a lot of good things while this government is in chaos. Thanks for that. But, you know, I think that, uh, seriously, when people say you've been practicing this a long time, I've I've told you this a lot of times, I go through the dialogue, uh, people say, how how have you changed in the 40 years of talking about this? And I say, I became kind, and then my husband says, you were always kind. And I said, that's true, but I became kinder, and I'm continually becoming kinder. Wouldn't you say that about yourself? Aren't you kinder? That's it. That I started the whole of my going to retreats in a time I was not so interested in levitating or manifesting in two places at the same time. Or some of the stories that they told about spiritual uh, talents. But I wasn't interested in being more kind. If someone would have said, why don't you take up this meditation, go on a retreat, sit quietly, long hours, don't talk, you're going to become more kind. I probably would have said I'm kind enough. I'm too anxious. I want to be less anxious. I want to be less anxious and less melancholy. But if you will, you know, actually, because I am more kind, my life is happier and I'm not so upset and I'm not so anxious and I'm not so melancholy. But that's a whole other story. We kind of stay the way we are. All right, we'll do Brahma Viharas because here's what we're going to talk about. If you say... Because I went to that because I think that that particular wise effort, right effort, is what you're going to do, going to produce suffering or not suffering. Going to be a wholesome state in your mind or a not wholesome state. What I had said before were the unwholesome states that tend to arise when we're confused, the fear and the anger and the blaming and the jitterness and the doubting. The wholesome states that can arise in tremendous beautifulness are the state of goodwill, loving kindness, a completely open heart, completely open heart, an open heart towards all beings. I remember years ago, uh, somebody asked uh, the Dalai Lama, what what are you going to do when you retire? Do Dalai Lamas retire? When you're an old man, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'd really like to have a more quiet, my life is very pressured now. I'd like to have a um, quiet time. I'd like to have a contemplative end in my life. And there are some really beautiful monasteries in China. And I, they, you know, I know the Chinese are my enemies, but I'd like to go sit in a in a, one of those beautiful monasteries, just a little monastery somewhere in China, in a beautiful place. And I remember this is decades ago, but I was thinking that's a surprising thing to say. I want to go in a country that's wiped out my country. It's not so often that somebody could do that. I was really surprised about that. There are some beautiful monasteries. We don't have to take the whole story that came before it, who did what to whom. But goodwill. In the Metta Sutta, about uh, this is what should be done by one who is filled with, by, by one who is, skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Then it's got a whole page with all the things that a person should do. But I think that perhaps the most critical line in that whole piece is, may all beings, uh, wishing and gladness and safety, may all beings uh, be at ease, whether they are near or far, omitting none. 
that particular phrase, omitting none, is like a, the crucial phrase that, uh, and it comes up so much these days that people say, well, certainly couldn't wish well for so and so. There are people that it's uh, complicated for me to wish well for because my body gets tense when I think about them and my mind becomes tense when I think about them. But I can certainly think about may all beings be at ease. If I have the idea, here's this big planet, people are suffering, it's too cold, it's too hot, it's too melting, it's too famine-ish, it's too filled with war things quite accidental happen to people all the time I read it, I read yesterday that 2,000 people died no, 200,000 people died in the world yesterday that's how many people die every day more or less 200,000 some of them in the fullness of time some of them are born already stillborn 200,000 people got bereaved yesterday you think about that Whoa, if this is my whole family and 2,000 people in my family were bereaved, may all beings be at ease. You know, you can panoramically wish well for everybody. It's hard to be a person and know that 200,000 people died yesterday. As well as 300,000 people yesterday drank water clean for the first time or used an internet for the first time. Those kinds of wishes, may all beings have clean water, may all beings get to use an internet, may all beings be uh, consoled when they suffer a grief. Death is a normal thing that happens in life. It's more disappointing when it happens out of order, but it's a normal thing. It happens to everyone. How to have it happen and say... Because this is a world of people who are um, vulnerable, and they impermanent like everything else. Just out of general compassion for how is it? I remember the the various moments in my younger life when I realized, uh oh, everybody dies. You know that. You don't quite get that when you're young. Maybe your grandfather dies, or maybe your great-grandfather dies, or the dog dies, or you're some person that you know in high school is in a car crash and dies. But the fact that everybody dies, Mozart died, how could that have happened? You know, so, such an accomplished person, Beethoven died. Mozart died too young. What is too young? What is too old? Everybody dies. And to really recognize that, you think it's amazing that people embrace life so fully and throw themselves into what they're doing, even though it's finite. They take a chance on falling in love with somebody, even though they know that if you fall in love, you make yourself more vulnerable to sadness. Because one of the things that the Buddha said that does not seem so happy. <laughs> it's not so happy. It's true. He says, everything that is dear to us causes pain. And I remember not wanting to teach that when I was teaching, when I was teaching Buddhism in Dominican college to freshmen and trying to present Buddhism in such a way that they should maybe be interested in thinking about it. I certainly wasn't proselytizing. 
But they said, this is a pretty gloomy religion. Everything is suffering. And so I did not tell them any phrases like, uh, um, anything that's dear to us causes pain. But it's true. Once something becomes dear to you, if anything happens to it, or her or him, you feel pain. Not every second. But... You have taken on them. I am noticing now as my uh, tribe, praise God, is increasing. I have more people that it matters to me that they thrive. And I think to myself, oh, hope this goes well, hope that goes well. I think the move between that and all beings is the move that most people can make. Not just my family. My family, my friends, the people I pass in the street people I see in the Muni bus, the people on the airplane. This morning I was driving here and I heard the weather, on the, the, tra- the traffic news on, and the weather on KCBS and they said the traffic is very bad because of a downpour. There's been a terrible, uh, very three-car accident on um, somewhere in the South Bay or someone in a motorcycle in an accident in the South Bay in the rain Actually, it wasn't the motorcycle. motorcycle it was yesterday. Today, it's a, a truck driver where they said there was a very big gasoline spill from that. And the driver died in that accident. And uh, on the other hand, Highway 28 is open, so you should take that. And I think, you know, it would. how would it be if every time they say the driver was killed in an accident in the South Bay or here, they then stopped for a minute and said something like, may that person's family be uh, sustained in their loss. Or how grateful we are for having paramedics who can come to the scene and take care of it. Something. It's not just a piece of news, somebody died. It means a lot to people. And how you take it in terms of not, uh-oh, I'll never go on a freeway. But it's a miracle to get up in the morning again because that didn't happen to me or one of my kin yesterday. And you know, when you hear about terrible accidents on the highway, you think about where are my people right now. I think it's the next move for human beings is not only think where are my people right now, but where are people right now. That that's the next possible move for human beings developmentally. Maybe we can do it better with cell phones, you know, because I keep waiting for somebody like, uh, I don't know, uh, Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or Melinda Gates, people who could talk talk on Facebook to three million people at one time. Say, let's stop doing this. Somebody with a big enough voice, the Pope and Melinda Gates and the Dalai Lama and... uh, A few other people, I can't think of too many, but uh, I don't know. Who else could get on? That would be an interesting homework. If you could get 10 people to to have a primetime broadcast on uh, every television network and every tweet in the world that said, listen, we're running out of resources and we're running out of time. Let's declare peace everywhere. Huh? (laughs) The first thought I thought was, "Ah, it 
But then I thought, hey, why not? Let's have peace. Not let, you know, omitting none. So this is, this is the teaching that I wanted to teach. It's a teaching called The Four Sublime States. I think the most sublime state is the, the sublime state of equanimity. Meaning, not tranquility where nothing's happening, it's just very tranquil. But equanimity really is the poised awareness of what's going on inside and outside. It's really a cinnamon, a cinnamon, synonym for mindfulness. Mindfulness is the poised awareness of what's going on out here, reading in the newspaper, hearing on the TV, and feeling in myself. That's mindfulness. Because including in that mindfulness the inclination to goodwill that I think is part of human beings. I'll tell you why I think the inclination to goodwill is human is is there are certainly human beings that do not appear to have so much of an inclination to goodwill, but I think the vast majority of people are inclined to companionable. We're herd animals. If I tell you talk to the person next to you for a minute, everybody gets interested and they do it. If you go in an airline and you smile at the person next to you, you don't know them, they're likely, if you say, how are you, they're likely to tell you their whole entire story. We are companionable animals when you say, how are you? You've probably had all kinds of occasions where people say, I'm terrible, I'm gonna, this and that is happening, because they're happy to talk to somebody, more the better if it's anonymous. Some supermarket in London, I can't remember which one, had a spiritual a counselor in the back of aisle three with a little table. Seriously, I read this in a newspaper and I, I wrote a column about it. So when you finish going down the bread aisle and you have any spiritual problems, you could sit down there and discuss it. And it was a changing chaplain from various denominations. You know, it was like, it was it was uh, it was, uh, I don't want to say manned by, it was, that position of spiritual counselor was filled by various clergy from various denominations of clergy, like the clergy that goes to a, a natural disaster and everybody's got a clergy vest on, you don't know what kind of clergy they are, but they're trained and interested in holding your hand in a crisis. But what if that happened? Every supermarket had a place to sit down and say, you know, I'm I'm distraught. You know, my I I'm a, I'm losing my job. My son is getting divorced. My mother is losing her mind. I don't know what to do next. I I don't think you can do anything to me. But you can do something for everybody. You can say, I really hear what you're saying. This is a hard time. Who's your nearest friend? How many sisters do you have? You talked something about just what are they doing? Because you can't go home with them, but you can empathize with them. General goodwill is a thing I think is what comes with herd animals. 
I think. We could talk about that the next time I'm back. Because not everybody... For a long time, I used to say, when the mind is clear, the heart is open. I said it because it was a lovely, I think it was nine-word rubric about why it was good to meditate or do some process that your mind became quiet because then your own essentially good heart would be available to other people. And I began to think that's not true for everybody. The the mind of a person who's ripping off the bank at uh, in a casino is clear, but that person's heart is not. A person who's climbed up and gotten in your second-story window and is robbing your jewel box has a clear mind, but not a loving heart at that moment. So what makes that? Um, I'm not sure. I have. I have. I, I, I'm probably when I'm back in a couple of weeks, we'll take it up somewhere from there because I think a lot about people in concentration camps, all kinds of them who are serving other people up to the last second. With a clear mind, we're all dying. But if we're all dying, and I can still stand on my feet, I'll get you a cup of water. Because you can't stand on your feet. Because I think that's how, in certain people, the clear mind works. How can I help? So that's metta. And a lot of people say, and and it's mindfulness of what's going on based in equanimity so the mind is not knocked over. Good heart comes out. Good heart comes out especially when something terrible has happened, when someone needs a cup of water, when someone has been bereaved on the highway. I think, I keep telling my colleagues, that I think making the Brahma Viharas all separate, like here is mindfulness and here is compassion, is a mistake. I, you know, we think about compassion because of someone who's dead on the highway. But how about compassion because someone is missing their friend who died last week, which is probably everybody. Or compassion for everybody who is in a moment, for compassion for everybody who's a human being. Because we love people. And... Um, what did I say that sentence was before? Uh, uh, I said that I said I don't tell this to people normally. Uh, everything that's dear to us causes pain. The Buddha is quoted as saying that. Don't tell me, but if, as soon as a person becomes dear to you, their loss becomes difficult for you. Anybody, my old, old, old dog can barely walk along. His skin is hanging on him. It looks like he's Tyrannosaurus because his whole little spine is sticking out and his hair is falling all out. Somebody said yesterday, did he always have fur like that? No, he used to have fur. But, and he limps and he's got arthritis. But if I open the refrigerator, he toddles into the kitchen and stands by his bowl. And the vet has assured me that as long as he eats, he's not in pain. And he can be there. And, you know, and he's going to die pretty soon. And I'm going to be relieved because I'm always worried about him walking around that way. So his loss will, and he's dear to me. I've had him 15 years. 
and I'm fine about him dying, but um, I'll miss him. I was thinking the other day, where am I going to put the bowl so I don't see it so much? That's what being a human being is. So I don't think that compassion is much different from seeing clearly. And joy about looking, hearing about some good news about somebody, to realize that somebody's having good news. I think about it sometimes when we're saying our prayers here in terms of people who are in certain circumstances. And a lot of the circumstances are difficult. And then somebody will suddenly say, uh, I'm uh, thinking about my grandson who's 18 and he's very disturbed because he can't figure out whether he should choose Harvard or Dartmouth or Yale because he got accepted in all of them. And everybody says, I can feel it in the room. It's like a collective hue. <laughs> like finally, there's a crisis in somebody's life that is not life and death, a huge disappointment. And how happy it gets. Somebody somewhere is, is going to get in all those schools. Maybe they'll develop the technology that's going to clean up the air and the, and the oceans that are full of plastic. That the, the fact that there's joy, it lifts up your mind to get up and look out your kitchen window and see that there's a bird that doesn't arrive until spring and then it's back in your backyard. You suddenly feel happy about it. Wow. Moment of joy. I don't think that they're all not inherently part of mindful equanimity, living with a reasonably balanced mind that's been trained to stay reasonably balanced. And I think mindfulness is a clue to that. It can't be mindfully hysterical. So that's all about that. I forgot. I brought this picture, and I had um, I had an idea. We'll see what you think of the idea. My friend, uh, my friend Joel died. Joel and her wife Martha, were, who has now died ten years ago, were the official photographers for the two thousand conference of Buddhist teachers worldwide that happened here at Spirit Rock. There were 200 Buddhist teachers from all the lineages here for a whole week. It was great. They stayed here. They stayed at Green Gulch. They stayed at other places where we arranged for them. And it looked a little bit like a week-long costume party because you know, different people wore, the Zen people had their Zen outfits on and the Tibetans had the Tibetan outfits on. Uh, we were acutely aware, since we don't wear outfits, that maybe we should get outfits, but we don't have outfits. <laughs> and uh, uh, they, they met up in that big hall up there. And the Dalai Lama came for part of that. He was there for four days, maybe, of it. Um, and we got a special uh, chair. Actually, Lynn and Henry Moody donated a chair for the week. It's a wing chair that you would have had in your living room in the 1930s or 40s. But it's a distinguished wing chair, and we put it up in the front on a little 
riser like that because His Holiness is supposed to sit on a throne higher than everybody. It was great. And during the week, Martha and Joel took literally hundreds of pictures of everyone who was there. And now that they're both dead, uh, I inherited all those albums of pictures, which I have given to Spirit Rock for them to make an archive out of. Especially, I think they should do it soon, because it doesn't say who's in each picture, and the people who know who the people are in each picture are mostly still around to tell them who they are. So they ought to make a thing out of it and make sure they get everybody named. This particular thing is the present that they gave to me. It's a signed photograph of the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama is not a rock star. I mean, people behave like he's a rock star, but he doesn't sign photos. He signed a photo, apparently, Martha and Joel, when they finished the week they had taken, among many pictures, they'd taken this picture of His Holiness and uh, made it into this large print and brought it to him and asked him to sign it. So it's an autograph picture of the Dalai Lama and then they put it in a frame and it hung in their house since 2000. And now they're both dead and they've given it to me to do something with and I didn't know what to do with it. And I'm, I'm touched by it, but I don't need it on my wall. And I talked to Jack about it. I said, what, what should we do? Uh, what should I do? Then I thought, uh, who, who suggested this? Ah. Maybe Jack suggested this. He said, bring it to your class and say, okay, uh, it, this is one of the things that, you know, when you go to an auction, to the silent auction. So I don't want you to decide today, but I want this to go to someone who will want it enough to offer a substance, whatever they're going to offer. I have no idea. How much is a, is a signed, autographed, picture of a Dalai Lama worth, the Dalai Lama worth. I have no idea. But that not that I would take the money. I would take the money and give it to a particular charity. I'd probably take the money and give it to um, Homeward Bound because it's a Marin organization that unless somebody said, you know, I'll I'm willing to buy it for five thousand dollars, or four thousand, or two, or whatever, and I'm going to give it to um, the Marin County Schools or the Marin County Public Library. I guess somebody might have a, 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 a an organization that I, I think that's more right. That the person who wins this in auction should have the would give me the auction money, and I would give them the painting, and then I would give this money to the designated um, charity of their choice. What do you think? What do you think it's worth? Have a silent auction. So what if starting uh, where are the people who are the 
monitors for this class all the time. There you are. Can I give it to you, Pam? And you put it up every week. I won't be here for a couple of weeks. You say, a silent auction. Verified actual autograph of proceeds to be donated. However you want to word it. How long should we leave it? A month? So a lot of people... So that other people... That's a very good idea. It would it'd be wonderful if we could put it up on, you know, nights when Jack is teaching Monday nights. A million people come. Hmm? Oh, that's a good idea. Who knows how to do that? Thank you, Marsha. Welcome to the 21st century. <laughs> so, Pam, could I give you this job? You give this to Heather. Ask Heather to figure out how to get it on the website, take a picture of it, put it up on the website, and whoever buys it, well, it currently belongs to Spirit Rock. I'm just keeping it, you know. But I'll give it to you so you can take it and show it to Heather. And people will see it on the website. That's a good idea. Now, should I say that people have to give it to a charity? What if somebody says, I want to give a million dollars for that, and... I'm not giving it to a charity. I'm not interested in charity. I just want it. Well, but Spirit Rock has... No, no, that was Joelle's wish, is that it should somehow benefit Spirit Rock, but what if the people did not want to give the... get it for a year that's a great idea huh so before we before we adjourn <laughs> you remember I said the Dalai Lama sat on the throne uh, 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 Lynn and Henry Moody took that throne back home afterwards and uh, decided to give it to Seymour Borstein as an 80th birthday present. And we, after we thought about it with a lot of thinking about whether or not it would take out the vibes of the Dalai Lama, we had it reupholstered. Because <laughs> it, was, it wasn't in a perfect shape. It needed to be reupholstered. So it sits in my living room. So people come and they sit in the very chair that the Dalai Lama said. I could put that up for auction and it could go around to different houses with the money going to Spirit Rock every year. What about that? I think you should set up your chair at the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Maybe they could pay for 15 minutes on sitting on the Dalai Lama. <laughs> 
All right, everybody on their own. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And we'll, we'll reflect on that. Think it over is my new thing. But don't you think that's the sweetest thing for them to have left that? Thank you. So let's give this to Pam. So she... I want to tell you that your parka is right on the chair, straight back. What is it? I brought your parka. I brought it down from upstairs. Thank you. Did I bring the rest of my stuff? (laughs) Yeah, well, your billfold is right here. Oh, thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.